Well, uh, they do say that a week is a long time in politics. I'm not sure who said that. I was looking for who said it. I couldn't find who said it originally. Uh, but certainly that's a truism. Surely Jesus and his apostles must have been thinking the same way. In, in some church calendars, today is called Palm Sunday, a day when people celebrate the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem at the start of a week. That is going to include the adoration of the crowds, teaching the truth of God in the temple, confrontation with religious leaders, arrest, desertion, torture, denial, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Messiah in the pinnacle of redemptive history. There's... Has, there has never been a week in all of history that has more packed into it in terms of meaning and significance than the week that we celebrate over Easter, starting with, with Palm Sunday. There's a palm tree on the front here. Somebody's, someone must have got a palm they've been waving around. Um, <clears throat> well, my name is Ian. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here. And we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew that we've called The Triumph of Grace. And we've already been looking at Matthew's narrative of this week, actually since, since January. It's so important. We've really broken it down and we've looked at it for, day after day, for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. There's so much important stuff in there. Uh, we couldn't simply just cover it on, on two Sundays. And so today we are looking at this passage that Angela's just read. Thank you, Angela. That was indeed a long passage. Uh, and all this action is taking place from late on Thursday night through to Friday morning. That, that's all. Uh, the, the story really just focuses in on just these few hours. And so we're going to look at this passage under, under three headings. They'll appear on the screen for you. The determination of the Sanhedrin, the dominance of the king, and the trials of the spectators. The determination of the Sanhedrin, the dominance of the king, and the trials of the spectators. We're going to be jumping backwards and forwards through the passage, so do keep your Bible open. You'll find that uh, helpful. I'll have it open on your, on your phone. Uh, there's lots in here. Uh, we could take we take three or four Sundays to go through this, but we're just going to do this in one, in one Sunday, in one sermon. And at the centre of this passage, as we think about this, as we've sung about, is the idea that Jesus is our suffering servant king. A king who has his eyes firmly set on the sacrifice he's going to make. The sacrifice he's going to make for his people on the cross. He's determined to complete this work. To save a people for himself. Knowing the incredible suffering that will involve. And being prepared as both on the one hand a servant and on the other hand as a king. To undertake that journey. So first of all. Let's think about the determination of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we've seen at the beginning of uh, 
chapter 6 in Matthew and, and a number of occasions as we've gone through the book of Matthew that the Sanhedrin's desire is to kill Jesus. This is their determination. They are going to kill Jesus. They want him executed. They want him gone. The Sanhedrin, if you're not familiar with that, that word, these are religious leaders of the Jewish people at this time. Well respected. They're, they're wielding significant uh, influence and authority. Uh, Around about 70 folks would be the full Sanhedrin, but they, that's not a uniform group of people. They're made up of, of different religious groups. We might think of them as almost like political parties on one level. Uh, some had different roles. Uh, some would hold different views on different parts of theology. And Jesus has been criticising them by implication and more recently directly, criticising them as self-important hypocrites who are unworthy leaders of God's people. And, and so this is a confrontation that has grown and grown to this point where they believe that the, the best course of action, the course of action they want to pursue is to have Jesus arrested and killed. Motivated by their, their jealousy of Jesus' popularity. He's very popular with the crowds. Motivated by their fear of the political fallout of his ministry. Motivated by the fact that, as for, according to their, their understanding of, of what is for us is the Old Testament, Jesus simply cannot be the Messiah because he's just not their kind of Messiah. He doesn't fit their view of what the Messiah is going to be like. So in verse 47, we can see how their, their plot is unfolding. The false apostle Judas has agreed to assist in the arrest of Jesus. And so he arrives in the garden where, where Ian had, had finished off his sermon last week. He, he arrives in, in the garden with an armed crowd. Now this is not the same crowd that, meet, that greeted Jesus on Palm Sunday at the beginning of the week. Crying out, Hosanna to the son of David and then laying their cloaks and their palm branches on the ground. No, no, no. This is, a, this is an armed mob. This is a, a crowd mostly made up of people like the, the temple guards that are employed by the Sanhedrin to, to guard the temple and to keep things in order. Probably some Roman army types are there. Almost certainly some renter crowd, common thugs who they've rounded up together. This is the crowd that has come to arrest Jesus. We're going to come back to Judas and what he does in a little bit later. I said we're going to jump around a bit. But let's notice the, the thinking of the Sanhedrin in, the, in verse 55 there. We can see it because Jesus is reflecting it back to them. He says, why have you come in the middle of the night? Why have you come armed? They've come in the middle of the night because the Sanhedrin is worried about the reaction of the popular crowd in Jerusalem. Jesus is still 
well regarded by many and the Sanhedrin do not want a riot. They do not want people fighting in the streets of Jerusalem. They've had the opportunity to arrest him in the temple during the day when he was preaching, but they want to hide their evil deeds in the darkness. They don't want all those supporters of Jesus to be involved. How often evil deeds are done out of the light. And the reason they've sent an armed mob is because they're, the Sanhedrin's understanding of, of political power, political power, is that you can expect resistance. If you're making a political move, you can expect armed resistance. Particularly if you're the kind of Messiah who they believe the Messiah should be. Someone who's going to liberate them from the Roman oppressors who's going to lead the people of God in armed insurrection then yeah you're expecting there to be some violence going on and that's why the mob is is armed and so their, their plot continues this plan that the Sanhedrin has put in place they take Jesus to the to the house of the high priest and down there in verse 59 they're looking for false evidence to put against Jesus they know there's no real basis on which they can convict Jesus to put him to death. But they're determined. And so they finally find two witnesses who can agree what's, on what's been said. It takes a while. Uh, under Jewish law, you need two witnesses to make a case for a, a death penalty. And they're, they're going to repeat the distortions of what Jesus has said about the temple, that he can rebuild it in three days. They've taken something Jesus has said, twisted it, and are using it to convict him. This trial is, is problematic. There are problems here. Researchers are not totally clear just how many of their own rules the Sanhedrin break here. Because we, only, we can only see the rules from sort of a few decades later. But we're pretty sure that they've broken their own rules quite a few times in this trial. For example, the trial is supposed to be held during daylight hours. The Sanhedrin doesn't do trials at night, but this is in the middle of the night. The verdict is supposed to be delivered after two days because it's supposed to be a bit of a you know, cooling off period or something like that. And yet, straight away, they state their verdict. They've certainly broken their rules by holding it in the, temp in the house of the high priest instead of in the temple. They've certainly broken the rules by not giving, by not giving Jesus the defence lawyer that he was entitled to. They don't care. They don't care. They're on a one-way track. And okay, and they're slightly in their defence. Yeah, they, they might have been concerned about uh, what would happen at the festival if this was kicking off during the festival, uh, the Passover festival that's happening in Jerusalem. Uh, the rules may have not been as strict as perhaps academics think. But it's clear that this is... 
on one level or another, a crooked trial. As one writer says, whatever it is, a way of removing an undesirable enemy is usually found where the will is there. And the will is there. These religious leaders have decided that Jesus must be eliminated. And it's all going to plan. <laughs> Great, it's all going to plan. Everything is happening as they'd set out. They think the, the, the arrest has gone well, they've, they've, they, they've got Jesus in front of them, and uh, they're able to uh, convict him. They think they're in control. Isn't that often the way? Isn't that often the way? Isn't that often the way for us as human beings? We are in control. I'm in control. Uh, to quote the poet William Henley, we like to say, "I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul." Never realizing that all those things that are going on around us, all those steps of providence, are part of the great plan and tapestry of God that He has already put in place these the sanhedrin think they are in control they are not we think we are in control we are not our second point then the dominance of the king the sanhedrin are not in control of this situation jesus is jesus is we have seen his determination throughout matthew to move towards this pivotal week in history. Jesus is not the helpless victim here. He is the dominant king. He is directing events with precision and with purpose. Moving towards the great events that are happening. Too often it, it, Jesus is portrayed here as being captured and corralled. Yes, Yes, his suffering is unparalleled, absolutely. But that doesn't mean he's not in control. The total control he is in here does not, does not merely mean he's allowing it to happen. He's allowing these things to go on around him. No, he's actively bringing it about. He is actively taking actions, saying things, not saying things to exactly the right people at exactly the right time to bring about his death on the cross. Because if he doesn't, there is no salvation for his people. As I said, to be sure, Jesus is genuinely suffering. If you flick over to chapter 27, this, this torture that the Roman soldiers pour out on Jesus in, in verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 27. This, this, this mocking, this torture, this flogging was brutal. Uh, when I came in, I noticed that the guys here have got a, a, some items from the Easter scene here and they've put a sort of a fake flogging thing here. It ain't like that. 
Right? This, this would have been strips of leather at the end of which have bound into them pieces of metal and pieces of bone so that when you are whipped with it, uh, your back is stripped bare uh, to the point of often your bones being visible. Many people, this was so severe that many people died from the flogging even before they were crucified. And this, this scene where the, the soldiers are mocking him and, and, and whipping him, I, I always find, even whenever I read it, I always find it deeply moving and offensive. Sure, not be, yes, sure, no human should have to go through that. But this is Jesus. This is, this is my king. This is their creator who they are whipping how dare they do this? How, how dare they have the, to think that they are entitled to do this? And, and yet, when I, when I say that, I also have to be realistic with myself and get off my high horse because I contribute to the death of Jesus as much as they do. It is my sin that he's dying for. I, I have to take my responsibility. I cannot just throw, throw my anger at them as justified as it might be. And yet even in all this torture, Jesus is totally focused. Totally focused on what he's doing. Serving his people by dying in their place. He knows that he's reached this point of the, his greatest action, the greatest thing he, that he will do when he dies on the cross, saving millions of people from an eternity in hell through their faith in him, through their repentance from the life dominated by their own self-interest. Some of those around him, even now, will come to recognise Jesus as being the holy God that he is, and after, after his resurrection on Easter Sunday, they will be united with himself as a new people who've received his righteousness through grace alone. The only by grace we just sang about. Even in this desperate situation, he's still king. He's still the king. The, the mockery of Jesus that the soldiers pour out on him, hail king of the Jews, so ironic. Hail King of the Universe would be better. Flip back over, back into chapter 26 for me. Verse 53. When Jesus is being arrested, he makes it clear that as a king, as the Son of God, he can call on heavenly armies at a moment's notice. Uh, we don't know if a legion of angels has the same number of angels as a roman legion has legionnaires if it did jesus says i can get seventy-two thousand angels like that from my dad i i cannot imagine what seventy-two thousand angels look like or what they are capable of jesus has that authority and power and he mentions it almost in passing be in no doubt jesus is the king and yet King Jesus is determined to follow his father's will. He's almost 
eager to get, in the, get on with the job. And that's why he leaves his angels at home and follows the will of his father. So instead, he responds with peace instead of with violence. He responds with silence when he's provoked by his questioners. He responds with deep truth instead of ambiguous statements. In each of these scenes in, in today's passage, we see how Jesus is responding. Every silence, every prophecy fulfilled, every prophecy he makes, every answer is carefully calculated to bring everybody involved to the place where they're supposed to be and to put him where he is supposed to be, on the cross. And the statement that seems to seal Jesus' fate is there in verses 63 and 64. The high priest puts Jesus on the spot. And we need to think about some of this stuff for a minute. Uh, he asks a question and he uses the high priest and he uses a formula of words that under Jewish law requires a truthful, clear and an unambiguous answer. When the high priest asks him, I charge you under oath by the living God. When he says that, the person answering the question has to tell, I suppose today we would say the truth, whole truth and nothing but the truth. Although ironically again, uh, he's asking the question to Jesus, who is the living God who's been asked to swear by the oath with, I'm not quite sure how to get my head around that. Uh, but he, he's being asked to testify by his own truth. But Jesus does it. Jesus answered. He answers clearly. Verse 64, Jesus says, you have said so. Now, th now this, this is a phrase that has two bits to it, so to speak, when, when we think about this. He's saying, yes. Yes, I am. Let's be clear about this. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. But, but the, the kind of reluctance is that in, that, in that, the way Jesus says that, is what commentators are pointing out, that, that Jesus is saying, I am, but not quite in the way that you think. Not quite in the way you're saying. Close, but no cigar. The kind of Messiah I am, the Son of God I am, is not what you have in your head when you ask me that question. The kind of Messiah I am is the kind of Messiah that, that, that I have been since before time. The kind of Messiah described verse by verse in the Old Testament, not by your cultural assumptions that you're making when you, when you say that. And he goes on to reinforce that. When he says, but, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man. That is a title again from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. Sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a reference to Psalm 110. He's saying, that's me. That's me. You're, you're reading about it in the Old Testament, that's me. Yes, I am. Nobody doubts. What, they have, what he's just said. 
Nobody listening there doubts for a minute that Jesus has just said, I am God. He's carefully avoided using the actual name of God. So he's avoided the technical legal definition of blasphemy that the Sanhedrin are looking to catch him with. And yet there there is no doubt. There is no doubt. The the high priest tears his, his clothes and says he's spoken blasphemy and everybody agrees. He is worthy of death, verse 66. Uh, People sometimes say Jesus never claimed to be a God. Yes, he did. It's right there. But Jesus is dominant. This this isn't, oh no, I've I've confessed to being the son of God. This is Jesus putting the Sanhedrin exactly where he wants them. Because what do they do now? What choice do they have? This He's manoeuvred them into the point where they have two choices. They can acknowledge him as the Messiah and worship him and follow him. Or they have to put him to death. Those are the only two things they can do. And because he knows them, he knows their heart, he knows exactly what they will do. He will put them to death. And so the trial concludes. The evidence has been uttered. By Jesus himself. What more do the Sanhedrin need to hear? The charge is blasphemy. That is a capital charge. There is no defence because Jesus has admitted it from his own lips. And the judge, or I suppose if we're the judges, if we include all the Sanhedrin, believe that they are in charge of the process. And they gladly bring the sentence, guilty as charged, worthy of death. And yet Jesus, the accused, is in charge. He's actually created the judges and he will make his own assessment of them on the last day. How ironic. This is just full of ironies. The fact that they are making a judgment on Jesus when at the end of the day they will stand before him and he will look them in the face and say to them whatever he's going to say to them. I think we know. The sentence is death, but they've got a problem. They can't put Jesus to death. They've got to go and persuade the Roman authorities to do it. They don't have the authority under the Roman occupation. And so they send him off to Pilate. And we'll hear how that sentence is carried out on Friday. However, although that's the only, well, these two trials, the the one with the pilot and the one in front of the Sanhedrin, although those are the only legal trials, they're not the only trials that we can see in this passage. At least in the broader sense of the word trial. Our third point then, the trials of the spectators. I want to suggest to you that Pilate, Judas, Peter, and on one level, all the spectators are also on trial in these scenes. They're also on trial. Not a legal trial in that case, but how they respond 
in the middle of these incredible events is a test, is a trial for them. And Matthew deliberately places them alongside each other so that we can compare their responses. So let's briefly think about about some of these folks. First of all, let's think about Pilate. Pilate's a Roman governor. He's been in charge in uh, in this province for a few years. Uh, it'll last a few more years, but uh, life as a Roman governor was fairly uh, sometimes short. Um, and uh, in verse twenty-seven, uh, chapter twenty-seven, excuse me, verse eleven, we see when Jesus is brought in front of Pilate. Uh, Jesus has been accused of a charge which uh, blasphemy doesn't mean anything to Pilate in terms of a legal charge. Uh, the Sanhedrin can bring that charge in front of Pilate. He doesn't care. They need another charge if they're going to get Jesus executed. And so they trade on this idea of being king of the Jews. And so they bring a charge of treason against Jesus. That he is setting himself up as king of the Jews. When of course it's Caesar, the emperor of Rome, who is king of the Jews. King of just about everybody at this point. Um, Now you don't get to be a Roman emperor if you allow people to claim to be a king of the bits of your empire that you're in charge of. And so inevitably this brings a death sentence if this is proved to be the case. And so Pilate asks him the question, verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus uses the same answer, the same answer that he gave to the high priest, the chief priests. He says, you have said so. Again, yes, close, but no cigar, not quite. For the same reason, yes, I'm king of the Jews, but not in the way that you're thinking of king of the Jews, Pilate. I'm the king, Jesus is saying, I'm the king of the Jews, but not a physical king like Caesar. I'm a servant king. I have a servant king who's going to serve my people. I'm a spiritual king. I'm a saviour king. But I'm not someone who is going to be physically ruling over the people of Israel anytime soon. And the members of the Sanhedrin then pitch in verse 12 like, just looking which kids we've got in the room, some of you can relate to this, like, like kids de- desperate to blame an older brother. <laughs> He's thinking of the Jews. Uh, and, and Jesus makes no further response. Even when prompted by Pilate, verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus makes no reply, not even to a single charge. And it says there that Pilate is greatly amazed. And the reason he's greatly amazed is that under Roman law, if a defendant makes no defence, then the judge has to rule him as guilty. So by making no response at that point, Pilate has to say that Jesus is guilty. There is no other choice under Roman law. Jesus, by saying nothing, is condemning himself to death. Again, he is determined to walk this path. And, and, and Pilate is feeling trapped. 
He's trapped because on the one hand, he, 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 he knows the Sanhedrin, he knows that Jesus is, is innocent at this point. And yet he has this mob who's gathering outside, outside his, his, uh, his palace where he is. And on the other hand, we know from, from other historical documents that, that Pilate is in a bit of trouble with, with Rome. He's messed up a few things before, and so he's between a rock and a hard place, between the, between the Roman Empire and the mob outside. He, he's got to seem like he's in control, and yet he knows in his heart, and his, his wife warns him, warns him in a dream, that, that, that Jesus is innocent, and so he, he wants to try and manoeuvre the situation, to, man, to, to navigate through this minefield, perhaps to release Jesus, while still keeping an eye on the mob, and keeping an eye on, on Rome. And so, so it looks like Pilate had, this, had started at what is a, appears to be a local tradition of releasing a suspected criminal at this festival time when so many people were gathered. Uh, and so uh, Pilate tries to use this to manoeuvre past the Sanhedrin. So he offers them to release either... Jesus the Messiah, or this, this man called Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a common name, like Ian. There's lots of Ians around, right? Um, and so, but that's a miscalculation, right? That, that's, a, that's a miscalculation by, by Pilate. Because Barabbas, although he, he's been convicted... Is a is a is a insurrectionist, a, a rebel against Rome. But the crowd is a is a nationalistic crowd. The crowd is nationalistic. They hate the Romans. So 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 Pilate is is asking them, who do you want to release? And they're thinking, oh yeah, we like Barabbas. He's our hero. He, he's fought the Romans. And so they ask him. And the crowd, the, the chief priests and the elders uh, stir that up to make sure the crowd are going to shout Barabbas. And instead, what do they say about Jesus? Crucify him. They all answer. Crucify him. And so Pilate, worried, it says there, verse 24, worried that there would be an uproar. Passes the sentence on Jesus. Even as he condemns Jesus at the trial of Jesus, Pilate fails at his own trial. The attempt to, to release Jesus hasn't worked, and so he does this hand-washing thing, try to remove his guilt. He... he, he he has failed in, in what he, he set out to do. He's failed. He could have released the Son of God at this point. And yet Jesus needs him to convict him. To go to the cross. However, Judas is also on trial. Judas is also on trial. He's heard different evidence. He has heard evidence not just on one day where someone has said he's the king of the Jews. He's had three years of evidence. 
He has walked with Jesus for and his companions for three years. He has heard the teaching, sometimes the teaching just from Jesus to his closest followers. He's seen Jesus perform miracles. He has been in the company of this divine servant king. And yet, he too perhaps is trapped. Trapped between the expectations of what the Messiah will be like and what Jesus seems to be like. Perhaps trapped, as we heard last week, uh, perhaps trapped because Judas potentially had had his hand into the, the, the communal money bag. And maybe he's thinking that, okay, if, I, if Jesus gets arrested, I can cover up my own crime. Jesus represents to him in, in some way that, that I, I, to be honest with you, I, I, I still struggle to really get my head around. He represents threat. He represents danger. He represents somebody who perhaps is not who Judas expected him to be. And yet his response to that, back over in, in chapter 26, verse 48, the betrayer has arranged a signal with the, with the crowd to kiss Jesus. That is something that only someone's closest friends would do. And not only that, to call him, verse 49, rabbi, teacher, a deeply, deeply respectful title. And yet he's betraying Jesus. Surely this, this, is, this is, irony does not even begin to describe this. This is sarcasm. This is slapping Jesus in the face with his actions. Why compliment someone who you are betraying? The charge against Judas at his trial is that he is the deepest and darkest betrayer of the Son of God, deliberate and malicious. And the sentence is surely death, and that is indeed what happens. Judas does not survive. Realising what he's done in chapter 27. Realising that being seized, it says there, verse 3, being seized with remorse. Not repentance, notice, remorse. He tries to somehow wash his hands, fails, and ends up committing suicide. As Jesus says elsewhere, it would indeed have been better for him if he had not been born. And yet if he had not, Jesus would not have been crucified. And the desire of Jesus, the the laser direction of Jesus towards the cross would not have been followed. Third person on trial is Peter. Peter, who we read there as he uh, denies Jesus back in chapter uh, uh, 26, verse 69 down to... 75 he's on trial like judas he's seen the ministry of jesus jesus for three years peter has been told that the church will be built on him and his confession that jesus is the messiah and yet he also in a way is trapped 
He has an instinct to take action. An instinct to attack during the, during the arrest. It says that somebody cuts off the uh, ear of the servant of the high priest. One of the other gospel accounts tells us that that is Peter. It's Peter who does that. And Jesus rebukes, rebukes him. He says, put your sword away. And yet Peter continues to take action. Even when the other folks have left, he follows He follows the arrested Jesus even into the very courtyard of the high priest's house. That takes courage. And yet mixed with this courage there is fear. Fear of what will happen if he is discovered. And so when he is challenged three times he denies knowing Jesus. Even taking oaths that he doesn't know Jesus. Each one, each denial, each oath stronger than the last. But this is not the kind of malicious and deliberate betrayal that Judas shows. This is someone trying to do their best, trying to do something positive, unexpectedly trapped. And and finding himself betraying the master that only hours before he'd committed to die for. And yet Jesus also needs Peter and needs Peter's actions here on this mission that he is on. Peter is going to be a leader of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. This sentence, this, this betrayal, Jesus will forgive after his resurrection. These bitter tears that we see Peter weeping as he repents will be used by Jesus to fashion Peter into that rock on which the church will be built, to fashion this leader who will lead the church. Finally, I want to suggest to you that We are on trial as we read these passages. Like them, we have been presented with evidence. Evidence of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As we read through the Gospel of Matthew, as we read through all of the Bible, actually. We've been presented with evidence of our own sin and unworthiness. We can see in Pilate and Judas and Peter parallels of our own attitude to Jesus. Some greater, some lesser. And the just sentence from Jesus for our sin is death. Like it. And yet, Jesus has offered to pay the price for our betrayal. Just like he does for Peter. By believing in him and following him. And yet... Maybe we don't follow. Maybe we don't follow because we feel trapped. Maybe we feel trapped between competing demands of uh, expectations of different groups of people, perhaps family and friends, in the way Pilate was trapped between the expectations of Rome and the crowd. Perhaps like Peter, we, we, we feel trapped 
because we feel called to action on the one hand and yet afraid of being uh, discovered and the implication of that if we do actually take action. The suffering servant, King Jesus, is going to the cross for you. He suffers torture at the hands of men who had created him for you. He may not be the king you expected to follow. He may not be the Messiah you expected to save you. But he is the king. He is the king you need and he is the only possible saviour who can save you. He has suffered everything for you. He challenges you to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which Matthew has captured the incredible events of this, what we now call Easter week in the Bible. There is so much going on. There is so much going on here. Lord, help us to see to the very core of it. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Saviour. The one, the only one, under heaven who can save us. That how we respond to him will determine how we spend the rest of our life. We'll, spend where, we'll determine where we spend eternity. Help us to look to the examples in, this, in the Bible of how people have responded. That we might indeed trust this King who has died for us in agony, paying the price for our sin and giving us his right standing before you. Amen.